This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jenkins! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com for all the obvious reasons. Um, plus, to find out why the, the fifth chair is in France. Okay, so... Um, very excited. We have a we have a new timer, first timer here. So he's he's miles from getting the gold jacket. Um, he's also a brand new colleague of mine who I just met a couple about a week or, week or so ago um, at that off the record thing that I'm really not allowed to talk about much at Sea Island. Um, and uh, he is a uh, a welcome refugee from from the Heritage Foundation where he did really important and serious work. And before that. Um, he he did important things about trying to kill people who needed to be killed. Um, and uh, I'm referring, of course, to Klon Kitchen. Klon, welcome to the Remnant. Uh, it's great to be here, Jonah. Thanks. So, um, I, w- you explained it to me when I saw you because it, it, it's a question that has to be asked. It's like if you're in the library and you just see someone quietly sitting with a um with a large pink goat, you kind of have to ask what, what, what's the deal with the goat? What's the deal with the name Klon? Yeah. So I'm a third, uh, my grandfather and father are also Klon. And the only story I know about the name is actually, I, I, I think a lie. Uh, we sat down with my grandfather a decade ago and asked him, Hey, what's up with the name? And he told us a story about being named after the, the Klondike railroad when it was being built through the, the mountains of West Virginia. But the problem is, is that uh, the Klondike Railroad is not in the mountains of West Virginia, and it wasn't even <laughs> being built when he was when he was born. So, uh, yeah, it's just legend. And uh, I don't, I, I mean, I think it's Scandinavian at some point, but uh, thankfully they shortened it to Klon, and and that's where it sits. Um, okay, I'm going to avoid uh, some wordplay and asking you about whether or not you ever wanted to open up a, a lesbian saloon so people could <laughs> ask you a certain question. We, we won't get into that. Um, I should tell listeners that um, um, you run basically the cyber tech wing of AI these days, right? What's your actual title? I forgot to mention that. That's fine. I'm, I Look, I'm a, a, a scholar in residence on uh, technology and national security policy. There you go. And, um, and I was not being entirely facetious or uh, I was perhaps being too glib, but I wasn't being inaccurate when I said you did spend some time trying to figure out people who, as they would say in Texas, needed killing. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about that background just so people can sort of level set about who you, who you are? Sure. So I, I, the majority of my career was spent in the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, got my start, uh, you know, doing the war on terrorism thing. Spent a lot of, you know, a lot of time in Afghanistan and Pakistan doing the Bin Laden hunt uh, and and others. And uh, you know, had a career that moved throughout the intelligence community. But that's that's how I got my start. And yeah, there are people out there that need killing, and uh, I have no regrets about any of that. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not saying you should. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be glib about it if you would work hard at killing people who didn't need to be killed. <laughs> that right. would be wrong. That's Those right. nuns. <laughs> um, so, um, hey, I, just this just popped into my head, but it is an obsession of my colleague Steve Hayes. And it just dawned on me, given that you did the hunt for Osama bin Laden stuff and all that. Um, do you have a sort of a standard take about why it, hit so much pushback and took so long to get all of his his treasure trove of intel sort of sorted and released uh well yeah i remember when you guys were doing that big process uh because i was on the inside we were trying to think through that uh yeah i mean look you know some of it is we hadn't gone through all of it ourselves uh we weren't sure that we had wrung all of the utility out of some of that information and then there's just a natural proclivity to not share you know, like we appreciate the journalistic desire to see that and hear it and everything else, but that's just so low on our priority when we're actually working the details and trying to pull that stuff together and make sure there's not one more bad guy we can reach out and touch based on that information before we let it out. Okay. So just fair warning at some point I'm going to have a party or the dispatch is going to have a party and Steve Hayes is going to be there and he's going to grill you about this. It's, it's his, it's his white whale, not mine. It's his thing. So, but I, now I've, I've fulfilled my obligation for asking it. So, um, let's actually start with something that's, it's so rare that this podcast is actually on the news. Uh, we have this colonial pipeline hack. Um, there's, I saw someone comparing it to, it's, it's, it's an, an NPR this morning comparing it to, um, nine 11, not in terms of death toll, but in terms of wake up call kind of thing. Uh, where, where do you where do you see it like in the grand picture of things? Yeah, well, I mean, look, it's a big deal, and we can talk a little bit about why I think that. Um, part of me would love to think that this is a, you know a nine eleven or a Pearl Harbor wake up call. I'm not convinced that's the case. I think part of what's going on <clears throat> is you know I think policymakers are in a, in a understandable rush not to kind of run up the escalation ladder that they're kind of they're pushing the conversation down a little bit and trying to de-escalate how they even talk about it. And what I've noticed in the past is that while that's good intention, one of the things that that comes with that is that it, it, it tends to kind of let the conversation go, right? That, that we don't hold on to it. It's not forefront long enough for us to actually take action. Um, yeah. So look, I mean, it's a big deal. Ransomware in, in general is a big deal. Uh, but hitting 45% of the consumable fuel on the East Coast, I mean, like that's that's not a small thing. And um, the you know this group is is coming out of Russia, and so we immediately get into some real geopolitical implications of all this. Russia, of course, is saying like, look, not it. We didn't do this. This this is you know some some guys on the side, and now the 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 attackers who they're called dark side, you know, they've got a press shop and they've actually put out a, a statement saying like, oh my bad, you know. Never again. We won't. We won't do this kind of a, a of an operation again. Uh, you know, they haven't turned over the keys to unlock everything. But uh, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah. So I got to say, one of the things I liked about that statement is it's it's rare you actually get organizations, you know, getting close to living up to like sort of James Bond villain <laughs> kind of. It's like Spectre would issue a statement like that you know like no 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 don't worry we don't do politics we're just into extorting and blackmailing people and that's what we do and sorry for the confusion i, I kind of like the honesty about it well it would have been even cooler if they kind of broke into tv stations and we just kind of all saw it together at the same time that would have been bond style coolness that would have been pretty awesome as well so yeah all right so this raises something which is one of the longest standing obsessions of mine on this podcast because it's a obsession that predates it by a good ways um I have long wanted the U.S. government to, in response to the cyber stuff, I've been arguing this for a long time, issue, and I, 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 all credit to do, I believe I first got this idea from Jeremy Rabkin, a law professor at Cornell, that the U.S. should re revive the const utterly constitutional practice of letters of mark. Um, my understanding is the last time we did letters of mark was 18, War of 1812, though there is an argument that a Goodyear blimp that was used for submarine spotting in 1941 because the guy had a rifle on it was technically kind of a letter of the mark kind of situation. But, um, it, what do you think about, I'll just be very general rather than leading the, leading the witness. What do you think of that idea? Is it half baked quarter baked 
fully baked, uh, where do you come down? I think it's generally a good idea. I like it a lot better than some type of blanket um, allowance that allows, you know, private companies to do what's called hacking back. You know, I think that's a, that's a, that's a hot mess and, and not a good idea, but look, we, we have some really capable private sector cyber actors. Uh, and, you know, if we set them loose, I mean, honestly, they've got an, increasingly, they've got, they've got more eyes on to the problem than we do, um, at least on a, on a narrow level. And, you know, I think if we, one, I wouldn't be surprised if we have done this. Uh, I don't know if we've actually issued a, a letter of mark, but some type of legal agreement where we just said, okay, guys, we want a level of, of space between us and this activity, but this activity needs to occur. Uh, go get them. Uh, I think it's, I think that is an acceptable, as you said, I think it's a constitutional The precedent is there. And I think it's an effective way of, um, of engagement. I wouldn't want our whole strategy to be that. No, but I'm perfectly not. fine with that being in the arsenal and, and leveraging that in a way that, um, uh, that would be useful. Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, not only is it, when I say it's perfectly constitutional, it's literally in the Constitution. Right. Issue letters of mark. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff that we can do that isn't expressly, you know, sanctioned in the Constitution, but it says we can issue letters of mark. And um, yep. plus, I just think the stationery would be awesome. You know, like we <laughs> we could really come up with something really friggin' nifty. Um. Um. Okay, so. Do you believe that the do you believe the Russian government when they say they had nothing to do with this dark side thing? How is that not how is dark side operating out of Russia, given the environment in Russia, not dissimilar to or not 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 like Al Qaeda working out of Afghanistan in the little in you know the late 1990s? I mean, formally they're not there, they're not you know approved of, but they've got bases of operation. Is there, a, is there a meaningful difference? Do you believe the Russians? Where do you, where, how do you see it as a geostrategic issue? Okay, Russia doesn't get off on this. Uh, I think there's kind of, I've been thinking through two scenarios, one that I think is the most likely and one that would be kind of cooler in a movie. Um, the most likely scenario is, is that Russia is, is deliberately allowing bad guys like this to operate within their borders. They've got a tacit agreement with them. Like, look, you don't come after us, but feel free to go make chaos outside. We find that advantageous. Go do it. And then in this case, again, this is the more likely scenario. Um, you know, dark side made a mistake. They they overplayed their hand. They they targeted the wrong thing, critical infrastructure. And, uh, you know, they're the dog that caught the car. Um, and now Russia's, you know, I look, don't be surprised if, if a couple of guys get thrown over the, the, the U.S. embassy and Moscow's wall, you know, and, and they're told, like, OK, here's what you're looking for. So, you know, look, I don't put a lot of stock in in Russian claims of, of innocence. Uh, and I think that even if they didn't directly manage this, there's still plenty of blame for them that would justify, frankly, a, a pretty strong response on our part, both overtly and, and, and covertly. So that's I, I would say that's the 80 percenter. The, the, the small percentage chance that I'm kicking around that I have no evidence for is that this is actually the breaking of the surface of um, of some kind of hand-to-hand combat in the cybers right now. So, you know, in the wake of solar winds, I know that we've turned the heat up on those guys pretty aggressively. And it's not hard to imagine a scenario where we're squeezing them enough to where Moscow wants to assert, you know, their capability. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to send a message, a little bit of cyber deterrence in terms of like, okay, uncle, let, let's let's stop pushing. Uh, you know, this is the type of activity you could do. Again, I think that's the least likely scenario, but it's an interesting one, and it, and those kinds of things do happen occasionally. Right. It's 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 implausible. It's 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 un it's unlikely, but it's plausible and possible yeah. for sure. Right. Right. But yeah. okay. So when you say we've been pushing back on solar winds, what have we been doing? Well, I mean, there's the there's the overt stuff where it's you know diplomatic demarches and and sanctioned and you know identifying. Uh, Russian cyber operatives that we're going to, you know, put on notice and that kind of thing. Uh, but then there's there's a lot, and this precedes solar winds. But um, one of the things that the Trump administration did that um, that I didn't mind um, was they gave our cyber operational forces a greater deal of latitude to to get aggressive. They they signed an executive order early on in the Trump administration 
the details of which are classified, but um, they essentially looked at NSA or U.S. Cyber Command and said, okay, go do good things. Take the gloves off and be aggressive. And so we've we've been engaging a host of bad guys, including the Russians, in a pretty deliberate manner. Sometimes we call this defending forward. Um, but the, the general idea is getting in there, disrupting their networks that they use, uh, and and kind of pushing back on them. Now with Russia, you got to be careful because these are these are highly competent actors and and things can kind of go sideways pretty quickly. But um, in, in the, specifically the waste of, uh, wake of solar winds, uh, I think some of that activity got turned up. So I mean, I've heard this from other people that you know, and whenever these stories emerge about us being attacked you always get the expert the, the clown kitchens go on tv and say well you know we have these capabilities too and this we are actively engaged in in blah 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 blah. but i never hear about you know uh russia's train system grinding to a halt for 24 hours because of something we did is it that is that it's not in russia's interest or china's interest to report these things because they're more terrified of seeming like they're not completely in control or because if they can't manage their own populations to respond, if, if they think that we've actually been attacked, I mean, what, what is it just psyop information, you know, censorship that we don't hear about this stuff or are we doing other things? I mean, have we completely blocked Putin from getting to, you know, Pornhub? I mean, what, what is it specifically that we've done and how come we don't really hear about it? Yeah, I think there's probably at least three things there in terms of why we don't hear it. The first one is, you know, we're a free and open society. And so this stuff gets out, right? I mean, uh, and, and, and that's not the case in a lot of these countries in Russia and China. So there is a natural kind of blanket on this kind of stuff. Because, yeah, as you said, you know, they've got a vested interest in, in, in the government seeming to be uh, omnipotent and, and not vulnerable to these types of attacks. The second thing is the, the kinds of targets that we choose, right? We don't stop train networks, you know, and, and, and we could, like we, 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 we build that capacity, but that's not the type of activity we're, we're trying to do, mostly because it doesn't achieve the strategic effects that we're trying to achieve. Um, so the, the stuff that we do is, uh, generally speaking, very targeted toward uh, the decision-making loop uh, that, that, that the government uses trying to influence that, trying to deny them capabilities. Uh, so if we see that they built a, a, a kind of infrastructure to support their cyber operations, you know, we'll, we'll target that and, and, and take a look at it. But then often, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's always a, we do what's called an intel gain loss assessment when we do these types of activities in the sense of like, look, just because I can take action on this doesn't mean I should because I'm getting a lot of insight just by watching. And if I take this down, I'm going to lose that insight. That window closes. So, you know, it's always a little bit of a of evaluation going on. Um, and then, the, you know, your point about, you know, our cyber ninjas versus their cyber ninjas. I mean, look, I, I'm convinced that our guys uh, and gals are, are the most capable, sophisticated, elegant cyber operators in the world. Um, and, you know, we can make it look like Russia pretended to be China when we do something. Um, but you don't have to be elegant to be effective. And that's one of the big kind of strategic cultural differences between, say, Russia and China, where China historically has has tended to be very elegant and, and quiet. Russia actually makes a point of kind of being aggressive and loud and, and using that as a kind of psychological impact. So you've got the cyber impact, but then you've got the psychological impact of like, look, we're standing up to the West. There's nothing they can do about it. Screw them. So all those things, I think, factor into why you don't hear it as much about what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I would add to that, um, and this may be changing in the last 24 months, but for the last 24 years, I mean, I, I didn't, you know, whatever the period of time is, for the last couple of decades, um, Russia's strategy has been to disrupt, delegitimize, wreak, havoc and chaos and doubt in the west it dates back to the cold war and china's strategy has been to be basically to exploit and free ride on the international system as it is get into wto and do these kinds of things and those two those two views of trying to divide the west versus parasitically to exploit the west 
you would think would yield actually different strategies in this kind of stuff, right? I mean, you want to, you would want to be elegant and subtle and quiet on the Chinese side if that was your strategy. And you would want to be loud and boisterous and unpredictable if you were Russia, if, if that was their strategy, right? Something like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, look, China has been trying to convince <clears throat> everybody, hey, we're not a threat. We're a developing company. We're just trying to kind of come into the party and, and have a good time. Um, whereas Russia was deliberately coming in and trying to take a dump in the punch bowl, you know, and it's just like that's and they've they've operated online um, accordingly. Um, the, the difference is, is that <clears throat> I think China has gotten to a place where. To kind of get to the next level, they had to be a little more overt, particularly to kind of align everything internally toward that. And that's finally uh, raised Western awareness and uh, hopefully eventually global awareness of, of kind of the gig is up and, and understanding like, oh, no, they they're trying to they're trying to kind of upset the party, too. So um, I want to get to Section 230 stuff. But um, since we started out with the foreign policy stuff, we should stay on it for a bit longer. Um, the one of the sort of um, standard lines on, on this podcast and, you know, I've been writing this for a while is that regardless of party, regardless of, of ideology, it seems obvious to me that we are entering an era of uh, hawkishness towards China. The only question therefore is dumb hawkishness versus smart hawkishness. And, <laughs> Um, I think there's a lot of dumb hawkishness on the left and I think there's a lot of dumb hawkishness on the right and there's a lot of smart, you know, and then, then you can have, and then the interesting arguments are between different versions of smart hawkishness. Right. And, um, and so on the presumption that AI would not have shown you where the bathroom was or given you the elevator pass, if you weren't, um, smart, um, what is your view of what smart hawkishness looks like? Or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you think we shouldn't be hawkish towards China. Well, I'm definitely hawkish uh, and have been for a, a while. Um, well, look, I, here's let me give you a little bit of background in terms of how I come at this, right? So, one, I see China as coherent, right? So China is like every nation in the history of the world in that it, it wants to amass and wield geopolitical influence for its own interests. That makes perfect sense to me. That is a coherent way of operating in the international system. Uh, I think they've also rightly concluded that to uh, to build and to use that influence, they're going to have to lead um, in a couple of key technology sectors. Ten is what they've identified. <clears throat> I think that's largely right. I think those sectors are going to be the, the foundation of the new economy. And I think that they're going to be the foundation of, of kind of modern governance. So again, I think they're, they're acting coherently. Uh, they don't have the dynamic innovation environment that we do um, by choice. Uh, and so one of the ways that they are trying to catch up and, um, and I think have, are increasingly more effective at doing that is they've been stealing intellectual property, <clears throat> both through the government and through industry for a couple of decades. And they've done it so well to where they're now legitimately beginning to innovate on their own. They're no longer just the world's kind of technology builder, but they're actually uh, creating and deploying um, technology innovation. Okay, well, because of the way they do that, where the government and their industry partner, uh, that creates some pretty significant or uh, market distortions, global free market distortions. And for a long time, the West, looking at the marketplace in China as this huge growing opportunity, has said, look, this is just the tax. We know we've given up IP. We know we're getting robbed blind, but the numbers work. And so we're going to go in and, uh, and, and that's just the tax of doing business in China and it's worth it. And, you know, that calculus maybe worked for a little while, but I think that calculus is beginning to break down. Um, on top of that, um, there have always been national security exemptions to conversations about the free market. I'm obviously a free marketer, um, but we've always understood that it, it, it just makes sense. That, look, during the, Soviet, during the Cold War, the Soviet Union is not going to build our trains, not going to build our jets or you know, whatever. Well, the challenge that we're facing now is that the, the technologies that are going to define and win future battlefields uh, are also just 
equally influential in the in the in the civilian marketplace, and they're overwhelmingly being developed by private sector companies. So when we talk about AI, when we talk about um, additive manufacturing or robots or you know whatever, those national security exemptions are are kind of getting broader than they used to be. And and I think a lot of the the dumb hawkishness and smart hawkishness spectrum that you describe are different responses to trying to navigate that, you know, that there's just a lot, there's a lot to manage here. I happen to believe that, that some level of decoupling is both inevitable and smart. I would like to limit that decoupling um, as much as I can so that we're not cutting off our, our nose to spite our face. It's an open question as to how well we're going to be able to manage that because, you know, China China gets a vote. And even if we resist decoupling, they're already making strong moves on their side uh, to forcing that in terms of trying to develop domestic capabilities for things like semiconductors. And they've ordered their government, for example, to no longer buy any American-made IT equipment and things like that. So in some form or fashion, decoupling is coming at us. It's a matter of how well we can manage that and and how much pain we can we can prevent. Yes, yeah, I like I may, may partly because I just wrote my LA Times column on this. I'm so it's in my head, but um, I really can't stand the way competitiveness is used in domestic politics. Um, which is not to say that we aren't competing with China. We obviously are. We're competing geostrategically. We're competing for global status. We're competing for spheres of influence. All of that kind of stuff. But. And so I'm with you on the idea that there may be some national security thing reasons why, you know, Huawei can't do our 5G networks. You know, that that seems totally reasonable to me, even even if they were the lowest bidder. Right. I mean, that that's to- totally fine with me. But um, there's all but the problem. One of the problems I have is that the sort of the smart hawkishness and dumb hawkishness kind of bleeds into these ideas about competitiveness. And I, I mean, I hate saying this, but Paul Krugman was right in the 1990s when he wrote, but before he turned to partisan punditry, he was a really good economist. And he wrote this fantastic piece. I think it was originally in foreign affairs, you know, uh, competitiveness, a dangerous obsession where he basically makes the argument that nations don't in fact compete each, against each other in terms of uh, pure economics, but because businessmen, think in those terms and because sort of the military geostrategic stuff bleaches into economics in ways we start thinking in those terms. But the reality is, is that if Japan got richer in the 1980s, that didn't make us poorer. We might've lost some status or prestige, but you know, standard of living and, and national wealth and well-being does not hinge on China being poorer. Um, in fact, it's, the correlation goes the other way. The richer China gets, the richer we're going to get. And one way to think about it is if Mexico got fabulous, became Switzerland tomorrow, that we would be less, we would be much less competitive with Mexico, but we would all be happier and better off. And we'd be good for everybody. And so I, I guess I just, I, partly I bring this up because I think you're right about the need for some decoupling, but it would also be nice if we could have policymakers and politicians decouple these geostrategic competitive questions from these economic competitive questions. Because what ends up happening is politicians start invoking competitiveness is the HR department, milk, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, version of nationalism, right? It's the, it's the pleasant watered down filtered version of nationalism and people tend to invoke it for whatever they already want so like joe biden says we'll be more competitive with china if we have subsidized daycare and i like where's the where the frick is the argument for that you know um and so this is part of the i think this feeds a lot of dumb hawkishness because there are a lot of people who think that doing trade with china on i don't know rubber shower shoes is detrimental to our national security interest or, or our economy. And I don't think that's true on either front. In fact, that make the more trade we do for these non-essential things, the more painful it is for China to want to risk going to war with the United States or one of our allies, because 
they don't want to lose that trade. I mean, anyway, what do you think about all that? <clears throat> yeah, no, I think I'm I think I'm largely there with you. Um, one, I always and this is just, you know, kind of where you sit is where you stand. I always make a national security argument. I don't I mean, I understand economics to be one of the elements of national power. And so a strong economy is essential for a nation's ability to defend itself. But I don't typically like I'm personally not worried about a wealthy China in and of itself. In fact, I would prefer us to to have the type of relationship that we've been trying to build for the last 40 years where we're both rich and we're both happy and we're both able to operate responsibly in the, in the international system. That is my preferred outcome. Um, but, you know, China has other interests that it's balancing and it's causing it to, to kind of choose a different path. I, I, one thing I always try to make clear is like, we're here having to make these decisions because of China, not because of us, right? This is, this is, this is them. Um, two, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that all economics are this, or all economic sectors are the same, you know? So as you say, rubber, rubber shower shoes, like, yeah, like, it, and I think about that, you know, from a, a very practical standpoint, kind of a real politic, like, yeah, look, if, if giving them shower shoes allows me to exert more political pressure on them, let's give them shower shoes and let's make that happen. Um, you know, I, I think one of the difficulties, though, that that a lot of policymakers have, um, and look, the former administration was just drove me crazy because, you know, you mentioned Huawei. So they would come out and they would make a strong security argument and a decision on Huawei that I completely backed, that I thought was completely justified and we absolutely needed to do this. But then in some other statement, you know, the president would come out and, and offer to trade it away for, you know, more soybean stuff, which completely undermined <laughs> the national security. And it was just drive me crazy because it just confused the issue. And there are skeptics out there who have good reason to say, look, national security is always invoked for some type of protectionist, you know, uh, economic argument. And I'm just not buying it. And they're not wrong. It's been used plenty of times. Um, inappropriately. But that doesn't mean that every time it's used that it's inappropriate. And and so I used to just get, it would drive me crazy when the administration would confuse the issue when I thought we actually had a chance to kind of make some some progress. Um, look, this is going to require nuance. And, and I imagine policymakers come at this based on what they know. So those who are more inclined toward the economic side of politics, they probably frame it in economics because that's the thing they can speak most coherently about. Uh, unfortunately, that's not always the best way to talk about China. Uh, it's not irrelevant, but when we're talking about taking, you know, kind of decoupling actions, just talking about our competitiveness, um, as you say, that's probably not the right frame. Right. And also, I mean, just, I mean, just, just to point out, like, if we're comparing standards of living, like if we're just comparing gross GDP, China is a major competitor of the second richest country in the world. If we're comparing standard of living or median income, uh, they're behind Bulgaria and Botswana. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's still a poor country in the aggregate. Um, and I think that sometimes, in part because people like you know, Tom Friedman, they visit some glittering new expo in, in, in Shanghai or Beijing, and they come home and they say, or I remember Paul Krugman once said, you know, if you think we're doing worse than Europe, I challenge you to, you know, come to where I am in Paris and walk around and, and you'll see they're doing great. So yeah, if you're in Paris where Paul Krugman's hotel is, I'm sure it looks wonderful, but China's got, you know, it's sort of like, it's an old story I've told a bunch of times, but um, Nixon was once asked whether he believed in overpopulation, whether overpopulation was a problem. And he said, of course, I think overpopulation, it's a, it's a huge problem. Uh, everywhere I go, I see huge crowds. <laughs> maybe that's because you're president of the United States, you know, right, right. <laughs> maybe there's some correlation there. So anyway, my only point is, is, uh, that, that, that we should see China for what it is. And I agree with you that they have, they have an understanding of their interests that they're coherently acting upon. Um, I, I always get a little nervous when I hear folks, I don't want to say folks like you, but when I hear people talking about how the, you know, states are always acting on their interests, whatever they're doing. And, um, 
and it gets kind of close to foreign policy realism, which I think is full of a lot of BS to it. Like my def, my working definition of a realist is an ideologue who lost an argument. Um, <laughs> and they always, they call themselves realists because, you know, they have this understanding that is correct and someone else has a different one and they lost, they lost the debate over it. But, um, I can make an argument. I mean, like we were saying before, it would be in China's interest to just get richer and be, be a better country and be maybe even be democratic. But like the elites in that country right now who are winning the debate have a different definition of what their interests are. It's much more like Germany at the beginning of the, the, you know, the, sort of the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. They want their place in the sun. They feel like they are the, the rightful regional hegemon and maybe global hegemon. They want respect and all that kind of stuff. And they're acting in accordance with that. And that's why there's friction. And I agree with you. It's, it's China generated friction. It's not us generated friction. Anyway, I didn't mean to ramble. Well, just on that, what's, what's interesting is like, I think I've always, I've, I've always struggled to kind of locate myself in, in kind of traditional foreign policy kind of alignments. I've always kind of passively or, or, um, informally referred to myself as a constrained realist, meaning you know, constraint Thomas Sowell's uh, conflict divisions, you know? So I, I, I have that presupposition about the nature of man, the constrained vision. Um, and then I do, I'm, 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 I'm not an idealist uh, and uh, I'm not neoconservative in my foreign policy, generally speaking, although there is some overlap. Uh, I'm, I'm a general kind of great power uh, kind of guy. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like, look, China's China's hard and it's going to keep getting harder. Um, and I want nuance, but, uh, you know, the other, as I say, you know, the other guy gets a vote and, um, the way they're acting right now, uh, is going to force us into some pretty difficult decisions here in the near term, I think. Yeah. No, look, I mean, and just to be clear, someone who has your background, who does, who's done the stuff that you've done, I'd want you to be basically a constrained realist and not get sidelined by a lot of rhetoric about ideals and, and, and all the rest. At the same time, there's a great book Elliot Abrams put out years ago um, by the Ethics and Public Policy Center called Honor Among Nations. And I think I'm like the only guy who read it. And, <laughs> um, uh, and but I think Don Kagan wrote a piece, essay for it. Anyway, the basic point is, is that, you know, the... You know, if you're of the, um, what are they, Waltheimer and Schmertz, whatever, the, the anti-Israel realist guys, um, there are a lot of these guys that think that, uh, that nations only do what is in their sort of, the, that nations are essentially homo economicus writ large. And I don't think that's remotely true. No. Um, China would not be willing to risk vast amounts of blood and treasure taking back Taiwan if they were just homo economicus, right? And the point that Abrams and the contributors make, which has always stuck with me, is that nations do all sorts of crazy weird things based on their sense of national honor, their sense of pride, their, their internal, trying to be internally consistent to their own cultures that, strictly speaking, do not comport with a rational, clear-eyed understanding of national self-interest. And, and that's what I, that's all that I mean is that is that ideology moves nations like it moves people. It's hard to predict. There's always some other motives involved. But if, if you can't say the culture matters and then say every country just does what's in their rational self-interest because they define what rational self-interest is differently. Look at Iran. I mean, Iran does things that are not in your, your mind definition of rational self-interest. Well, that's the thing. So I, I will rarely use that term, rational self-interest. I think what, one of the things I do is I wrap up the idea of of interest into the ideological aspect, too, because I understand nations have an ideological notion of themselves, certainly the governments, and that they're going to pursue those and that at times that may be against their own economic interests. I mean, we obviously do that, right? I mean, like, gosh, man, this war is going to be really expensive and it's going to be a pain in the ass. Well, uh yeah, but we got other things that we're trying to see through here. So this is why we're going to do it. All right, let's, um, let's, let's switch gears, which is one of the things I originally wanted to talk to you about, but then we got mugged by reality or whatever. Um, section 230. So as I was telling you in the green room, as it were, um, I listened to this podcast that you were on. We don't have to get into details of it. It was, 
it was from a different time and a different place. And, um, but you, you described the reason why, and maybe I misheard. I didn't rewind it. And it's like, wait, what? it wasn't like a record scratch kind of thing, but it was interesting to me. And if I misunderstood it or you misspoke, just that'll be the end of it. But you described the reasons why section 230 was passed was to exempt all sorts of platforms from lawsuits over violations of free speech. Does that sound like the right way that you character might have characterized it? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. What I, what I said was originally part of what was going on uh, with Section 230 was there were platforms out there. There was one called Prodigy um, who wanted to remove content from their website. They didn't want to host it. Uh, including some of the worst stuff that that the internet naturally produces. And um, because they had done that imperfectly, they got sued and, and lost. And so one of the enable one of the, the enabling uh, objectives of 230 was to free up platforms if they wanted to to remove content, you know, gross content from their platform. Uh, without them being sued into oblivion for you know violating someone's freedom of speech rights or something like that, um, and you know I think that two thirty has subsequently been interpreted much more broadly than that through multiple um, court cases, um, but that the underlying objective of two thirty remains in part, um, you know, to to help platforms. And, and again, it's important that you understand that people understand that 230 applies not just to the big platforms, not just to Facebook, not just to YouTube. 230 governs a web presence. It, 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 it governs, you know, AI from being able to decide what content it's going to post or not post on its website or the dispatcher, you know, anything else. So, uh, yeah, you know, look, I think I think if you let the Internet just kind of go off on its own, it becomes a pretty gross, awful place. Uh I think it's a fine policy objective for us to want to enable people to uh, not participate in that grossness if they don't want to. And so I, I think 230 is, is worth trying to, to fix. That being said, I don't think it's sacrosanct. Uh, internet companies operate all over the world without Section 230. And I don't think the world's going to end if it were somehow to, to go away. I think there'll be some trade-offs. Right now, I think it'd be better to fix it and, and keep it. But um, you know, others disagree. Yeah, no. So I mean, the, the only reason why I asked that question in such a convoluted and weird way was that my under—I mean, I've read a bunch about Section Two Hundred and Thirty, and you know, as someone who was the founding editor of National Review Online, um, that always sort of informed my thing. And and and, and to me, I, I always thought that the point of Section Two Hundred and Thirty wasn't wasn't to protect wasn't to protect platforms from ban who wanted to ban people it was and i realize now it was sort of my myopic memory of it was like one of the reasons why we st at national review online we held off doing comments for so long was that we did not want um you know people people now understand in the process that you don't pay attention to the comments if they're nasty because they don't they don't they don't necessarily reflect on the host kind of thing but in the early 2000s um we knew that if we all we needed was one neo-nazi jackwad in our comments section <laughs> and the new york times would write the national review hosted a neo-nazi blah 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 even though you know it was from you know you know uh you know ss helmet four seven nine three six two oh four right they would say well he's like a contributing editor or something and so we held <laughs> off and um and but my understanding was always that it was it was less to protect for free speech for, for protect platforms for censoring people than it was um to uh not be held liable for the stuff that third parties say on your site and i guess so it was both, both but i just never heard it phrased yeah. the way you did it and i thought it was interesting yeah it, it so it does both and if you look at the uh, at the at the actual language you see that that it has different sections for both, for both the kind of over moderation and under moderation, and allowing platforms essentially to decide what they want to what they want to host on their private platform. You know what speech they want to participate in and what they don't. Um, and so, consequently, 
the conversation, while it, it appears that there's a bipartisan bipartisan consensus to to, to change or, or or address 230, on the left, all of the energy is behind concerns about a lack of content moderation. They think that that there's too much hate speech and too much violence and everything else, whereas all the energy on the right is that there's way too much. Uh, and so that's one of the things that's actually present, uh, prevented any real meaningful you know, evolution is that everybody agrees there's a problem, but they have a fundamental disagreement on what the problem is. Yeah, all right. So, I mean, I, I get the left's position. I think it's wrong, but it's like really easy for me to understand. They want something like the Fairness Doctrine. They want hate speech banned. They want content, mod I mean, like they want, they want comment sections or the internet or social media platforms to be policed the same way uh, the student union at Bryn Mawr should be policed, right? You know, don't say mean <laughs> things as defined by a progressive point of view. Fine. I get it. Disagree with it, whatever. I, 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 every time it's, it's sort of like trying to understand, um, monetary policy. I can do it for a very brief period of time. And then it just kind of evaporates out of my head. Every time I try to read, I read a smart conservative reason for repealing two thirty. Like I get what they think they're angry about but there's just something missing there because if they want more free speech for th their side quote unquote i don't get how getting rid of section 230 gets you there it feels like it takes you further away from that i mean you have to engage with all of this stuff what is the best argument for getting rid of section 230 that it will actually solve the problems that josh holly and these people you know, say exist? Well, the underlying, so the, the, the part that isn't said out loud is we're pissed off at these guys. And this looks like a really big club for us to use to kind of exact our revenge and, and, and compel them or coerce them, you know, to, to be more fair. Right. So the idea is, is that, look, we removed 230. We'll sue these guys into oblivion and they'll have to conform. That's, that's the strategy. Um, it's also become just an incredibly effective piece of political rhetoric, right? I mean, like one of the best things that can happen uh, to to a conservative organization is for them to be able to say that they were banned. Uh, they they will raise money hand over fist uh, for the next twenty four to forty eight hours doing that, and then inevitably, you know, you mentioned a particular senator. You know, recently that senator wrote a book about big tech, and then. Um, went on to Twitter to, uh, you know, congratulate himself about how well he was doing on Amazon uh, with book sales, you know, and um, and the irony was apparently completely lost, you know, when that when that happened. Um, look, I, you know, you mentioned the other podcast. Yeah, I always try to be understanding and appreciative of. Kind of the, the 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 underlying concerns that are motivating folks. Um, I get why conservatives feel um, you know kind of beat down and 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 suppressed online. When it comes to social media, I'm honestly not sure. Like I have yet to see any real compelling evidence of systemic anti-conservative bias. Now that doesn't mean I can't point to you know one-offs. And and look, the one-offs they feel like they come a lot. Uh, they, they come down the pike a lot, but but if you you know and if you look at the numbers, conservatives are thriving online. I mean, like they're just they're thriving, and um, we we have a a pre existing frustration with how we're treated in media uh, that follows us online. Um, there's enough reality to that to where you know it certainly cannot be dismissed, and then on top of that. You know, these companies want their cake and eat it, too, in the sense of, on the one hand, they they proclaim themselves these, look, look, we're just we're just market actors. We do what's in our own interest. And, you know, we're doing this. But then they also turn around and talk about how they're on the right side of history and how they're not motivated by the bottom line and how they're trying to improve human thriving and so on and so forth. And so it's one of those things where I'm sympathetic uh, or at least empathetic with um, the concerns that conservatives raise about how they're treated online. And, you know, a lot of the kind of culture warring stuff from the left uh, really is insane and it rightly frustrates everybody. Um, at the same time, 
I don't think that we're at a place where we can just kind of abandon principle, you know. So if I can, I'll, I'll wade into the to the the minefield of, of of Trump getting banned from from Twitter. Um, you know, look on on the one hand, Trump was able to be on Twitter longer than any normal person ever would have been precisely because he was being governed by what they called the head of state policy. Um, and that's where, you know, Twitter allowed heads of state and other senior government officials a greater deal of latitude because they thought, hey, this is in the best interest of of, of the public to, to be able to hear these people. And so. And of Twitter. You know, he, yeah. Well, yeah, it doesn't hurt them at all. Yeah, it's right. right. It drives engagement and everything else. Uh, so, you know, he was there. Well, look, when it became politically feasible and when he, you know, crossed some pretty significant lines, they banned him. Now, the reality is, is that I never really understood the conservative argument that was made about that. You know, he's like, well, he's the president of the United States and you're deplatforming him. No, number one, he was the president of the United States. He had plenty of platforms. But then two, so what is the argument that that we now believe that the president of the United States should be able to commandeer and use as he sees fit anytime he wants private property because that's what Twitter is. And, and like, that is not, that is not a conservative worldview. Like that, that just doesn't, that doesn't fit. Um, you know, and, and the idea, frankly, that, you know, we, the people, uh, which, you know, again, Twitter is a maddening part of that, but they are a part of that, that, you know, it's a private institution that we, the people can constrain the government, that we're not forced to kind of carry a message um, if we don't want to. That just that that reeks of conservative philosophical presuppositions to me. And um, and I, I just feel like there's such a level of a sense of aggrievement, which again, it is understandable, but there's, it, it's reached the point where we are willing to abandon what I would identify as principle in an effort to kind of get our pound of flesh. And I just, I just think that's a dangerous place to be. And, um, and I hope we're able to kind of fire way out of it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, 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 just because it, it's now sounding much more mysterious than I intended, I was saying before the podcast started that, that, um, Often what I'll do is if I haven't had someone on before if, and it's some subject that's a little outside my wheelhouse, I'll listen to them on another podcast. I'll find a podcast with them and I'll listen to it. So I listen to you on like a two-year-old podcast called The Realignment, which has these two guys who are very pro-Trump, very sort of new right in their orientation. Um, I don't think they said anything particularly outrageous on the podcast that I listened to or anything like that, but I know a little bit about where they're coming from and all that. And I think that's mostly bogus um, um, you know, I'm not trying to dragoon you into to my theories of the universe, but one of my one of my main operating assumptions about a lot of the a lot of the vitriol that's aimed at me, a lot of the vitriol that's aimed at David French, a lot of the vitriol that's aimed at AI, a lot of vitriol that's aimed at Liz Cheney, and about and classical liberalism and procedural liberalism and these whole these fights between sort of MAGA nationalists and traditional conservatives. Ha, that elite theory has a lot more to, to explain, does a lot more to explain it than ideological considerations. And that there are a lot of people who are using these arguments in the, in a sort of a, in the way Nietzsche would describe in genealogy of morals as a, as a weapon to displace a current elite or, or, or at least a group of people they see as an elite that's in their way because they want to be running these institutions instead. And, um, and it doesn't mean they don't necessarily, it doesn't mean they all don't believe what they're saying, but the psychological permission structure is a little backwards in that they, they believe it because it is useful to them rather than that it's useful to them because they believe it kind of thing. And so anyway, when one of the guys, I don't know which one was talking about how government should be using that, that conservative, sh it's a conservative principle to be skeptical of power. And which is something I hear from a lot of these people. It's what you hear from JD Vance. It's what you hear from, uh, you know, Josh Ali and that, uh, we should be we should be skeptical of concentrations of power wherever we find them, and that blah 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 blah. First of all, that is like almost literally Hillary Clinton's definition of progressivism from the the 2008 Democratic debates. Is that you know it's progressivism is about standing up for the little guy against entrenched power, whether it's corporate power, this power, that power. Second of all, conservatives are not by principle opposed to power. 
what conservatives by principle, going back to Edmund Burke or Botu, is arbitrary power. Is 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 power un unchecked that can be uh you know that can be used capriciously um and uh without heed to law or custom or responsibility and all those kinds of things. And um I just don't see a lot of that. I see I agree. There are there's 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 plenty of anic data about conservatives being stifled or silenced and all this kind of stuff um out there. But if you look in the aggregate, it's just, it's kind of BS. I mean, you look at the top 20 Facebook pages on any given day, and it's always hilarious. It's like Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro, Ben Shapiro, <laughs> Dan Bongino. NPR does wildlife walks. Don Bongino, Dan Bongino, <laughs> Ben Shapiro. It's like, this is not a sign of massive censorship or anything like this. And, and the problem is, is that if you start saying that everything's about contests of power, then um, th that is a, just a very easy recipe for statism. It's a very easy recipe for um, really getting rid of, I mean, like if, if, if you just think power should be used for your ends, then getting rid of section 230, the idea that the left won't use that new legal environment to really censor speech just strikes me as naive. Yeah. So that's one of the key points that, that I've tried to make is that, you know, a, a word of warning in terms of some of the unintended consequences of particularly kind of getting rid of Section 230. Again, I don't think it's sacrosanct, so we can get rid of it. But I think we if we do that, we need to we need Replace to have our eyes something. wide. Yeah. And we need to have our eyes open in terms of what we're messing with. Right. So I think there's at least two kind of responses <clears throat> that could occur. The, the first one is an overcorrection where the platforms say, okay, well, if you're going to hold me liable, well, then I'm just going to cut down on everything, right? I mean, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to squash anything uh, that, uh, that could be construed as, uh, uh, you know, a violation of policy. And, you know, look, <clears throat> the, the ideological landscape has already been laid in that regard in, in terms of that's going to cut against conservatives, right? So the, the, the political left and, and, and to the degree that social media aligns with that, which is, you know, pretty significantly, um, they've embraced the notion of words as violence, right? And so at the point where, you know, we get to this place where, where they're just going to have a, a no mercy standard, you know, at the point, you know, that's going to be when platforms start saying, well, okay, you know, asserting some type of a pro-life view on here is out of bounds because you're making our users who've had abortions or who support abortion feel unsafe. And, you know, we're, our platform's not going to be used for violence and therefore, you know, you're done. Like we could, we could definitely get there, right? Uh, the only thing that's preventing us from that is, is kind of politics. It's not policy at this point. Um, on the other side, <clears throat> there could be a no standard reaction where they said, okay, I'm not going to get in the, in the business of being held liable for policing content. So I'm not going to police any content. And, you know, that's where, you know, Facebook and, 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 and all the other, they just become awful, awful garbage dumps of, of the worst stuff imaginable because they're no longer doing any kind of content moderation. And that's not a, uh, an attractive outcome in, in my view either. And so, you know, I just, I just, as we have these conversations, um, the policy question is hard and it's nuanced and it, you know, requires some some careful thinking. And I do think there are a couple of really fundamental principles at stake. But the political conversation completely crowds all that out. And it becomes, um, it's just a hot mess. And, uh, you know, I, I waded into it, I wrote a paper called Section 230, Mend It, Don't End It. And, uh, you know, I had that conversation on the podcast. And to those guys credit, I mean, we disagreed, but they were they were generous and, and, and respectful yeah, to me. And they, yeah, they, yeah. yeah, they heard me out and, um, and I appreciated that chance. So that was good. Well, I, I also, I mean, I mean, and I don't mean this as a slight to them, but this often is the case that if you're a halfway decent person and you tend to be a bomb thrower and, uh, and on, on issues, and then you actually run into somebody who really knows what they're talking about. Civility is a very good defensive reaction um, for for hedging risk about being about looking really bad. Um, I'm also six foot four, you know, two twenty, so that helps. Yeah, no, it does. You are a, between the two of us, we are pretty average. If we average us, we're we're a pretty normal 
physical specimen, but you're you're an imposing fellow. So like listeners will take, I'm worried about one thing for listeners. We have definitely heard the sound of of dog perambulation and and shaking in the room. And I want to be clear, these are not my dogs uh, making yeah. these sounds, not that I judge these things. Um, uh, who Who is in the room with you and um, um, is yeah. he all right or she? Yeah, uh, it's he, it's Bo. He's a black lab. Um, he is five years old and he's usually a great office mate and just sleeps on the floor next to me. Yeah. Uh, but he is, uh, he's ready for his break. I understand. And, 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 and you've been patient with us. I can't have the dogs in the podcast space where I podcast because they w- will start chastising me. And, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, it's a problem. Um, all right. One last thing, just cause I want to be able to post to the little explainer things that you did. Um, what the hell is quantum computing and why should I give a rat's ass? <laughs> so quantum computing is essentially magic. Um, the bottom line is, is quantum science, doesn't operate with the same uh, rules that uh, traditional physics does. Right. That's why we can't have a unified field theories because the little right. stuff doesn't operate the way the big stuff does. Yeah, exactly. And there, there's two kind of big aspects. There's there's this thing called superposition. Uh, you know, traditional physics says that you know something can't be in two states simultaneously. Well, superposition is when something does that when it actually exists in multiple states simultaneously. Uh, and then there's this other thing called entanglement. Entanglement is this idea that um, two bodies, particles, get um, connected in such a way as to where the state of uh, one of those particles determines the state of the other particle, even if they're separated by kind of huge distances. So imagine two dimes spinning on opposite sides of the universe, and you stop the one dime and it lands on heads. Well, you know definitively that that means that the other dime is also on heads. Um, Isn't this the EPR paradox? Wasn't there the, it's, yep. it was something I was obsessed with in high school, the Einstein Polsky Rosen paradox, whatever. But anyway, so I, Einstein actually called uh, this, um, what did he call it? Um, was this where the dice comment comes from? Yeah, oh, it's, I've lost it. But it, anyways, uh, the, the point of it is, is that so those two um, dynamics of quantum physics being applied in the computer science realm means that, you know, instead of having these bits that operate as a one or a zero, you can have these things called qubits, which can be a one, a zero or both simultaneously, which exponentially grows uh, your computational capability. Uh, similarly, if you can entangle qubits, you've again uh, exponentially grown your computer power or compute power uh, and efficiency capabilities. So all that to say, quantum computers are potentially paradigm shifting. We're not there yet, but there's been more advancement in the last 10 years than I think anybody expected. And um, it's the kind of thing where if we can actually achieve what's called quantum supremacy, um, it would offer the type of tool that could fundamentally change pretty much all kind of scientific discovery, you know? So instead of hypothesizing what's going on at the quantum level, we could actually model it and, and, and begin to observe that kind of thing. So it's a big deal. Um, and, um, it has some pretty significant national security implications as well in terms of encryption and and other things. Plus, I mean, just that we can be, Brutally honest here, quantum supremacy sounds really badass. Oh yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's right, that's right. That's a that's a tattoo waiting to happen for somebody. <laughs> All right, Klon Kitchen, um, uh, welcome to AI. Welcome to the Remnant. I hope to have you back sometime. I hope this wasn't too painful. And uh, say hi to Bo for me. I will. Thanks for having me, man. Okay, so uh, Klon has left the uh, studio. And, um, I thought that was interesting. He's a good dude. I'd never met him until like a week ago. Um, knew who he was, but just didn't know him. And, uh, um, he, uh, he kind of looks like he could be, you know, an extra on, um, sons of anarchy. Uh, I mean, he's a little too well, uh, uh, well groomed, but, but still he's got that, he's got that sort of seal team six kind of beard and build and, whatever. And, um, um, so even though he's only like an inch, literally an inch taller than me, 
um, because he has that kind of posture and stuff, you look at him and you're like, wow, that's a different species of human than, than Jonah Goldberg. Um, uh, anyway, I thought it was interesting. I was delighted. I should have dwelled further on letters of Mark, but he agreed with me, which kind of just mm, took me back for a second. And I, I didn't have, it's so rare that I get, you know, agreement that, that I should have said, well, how would that work? What would we do? But I, I didn't. Um, but score another one for letters of Mar- for, for cyber letters of Mark, which I think um, is the kind of creative thinking that we need in the in the policy world. Um, and uh, other than that, I'm not sure what else there is to um, uh, to dilate on. We are scheduled this evening to record um, a podcast with Neil Ferguson. Hopefully, that will come through. He's got crazy book tour issues. So, um, if it doesn't come through, uh, for Thursday, um, you know, we'll let you know, but, uh, the plan is to talk to him about his new book, doom, um, which is very exciting. Um, and he's a very popular guest on this podcast. So look out for that and tune into the, when, you know, we, every Wednesday we dispatchers do the dispatch podcast, which is fun and exciting for all ages. Um, and is among the best, I think podcast punditry that you'll find out there so you should check that out and you should become a paid member of the dispatch community which would you know be good for everybody so with that i'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.